0: The reading this evening is from the book of Acts, chapter 19, beginning at verse 21. If you would like to follow it in the Church Bibles, it's on page 1116. Acts 19, 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all there is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, They were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon, the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, "'Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know "'that the city of Ephesus is the guardian "'of the temple of the great Artemis "'and of her image, which fell from heaven? "'Therefore, since these facts are undeniable,' You ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, It must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Mandy. That was brilliantly read. I, I love it when we get a dramatic reading. It's just so punchy, isn't it? It's really good. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we sit here um, with you this evening, trusting that you will speak to us. We love you, we adore you, and we so want our hearts to be captivated by your wonderful gospel. And by the Son that you love, please will you do that. Please will you speak your words to your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Why does the message of Jesus cause offense? Why does Jesus' way offend people? Now, I know that by now some of us who've, well, if you've been Christians for any, number of years, we'll know what it's like to get that awkward feeling when we talk about our hope in Jesus. But why does it feel awkward? You know, try as we might, we approach the conversation from many different angles, but still explaining the gospel becomes a point of contention. It's some years ago now, but I used to work for a translation company And I used to hate it if religion came up at lunchtime, because where I used to live, which was Bavaria in Germany, that's a Catholic state, and Catholicism was obviously kind of ripe for the picking, one of those juicy topics that people love to kind of throw around and talk about. So I'd be sat there just minding my own business at lunchtime, having my lunch in the office kitchen, and as sometimes happened, one of my colleagues would turn to philosophy or politics or... Religion. And my French colleague, who I was genuinely really, really good friends with, would look over at me and I could tell that I was next up as the butt of one of his jokes. And I wasn't even Catholic. I didn't believe what others thought I believed. And frankly, I kind of just wanted to eat my lunch. You know, occasionally things that go smoothly. Most, most people are, well, fairly reasonable at work, most of the time. But I still felt like I was walking on eggshells, like I was the odd one out, like I was saying something quite controversial. Even though I knew Jesus is truly wonderful, he's beautiful, the message of God is hopeful, it's true, it's amazing. It took patience to endure sometimes their pity or misunderstandings, their scores, sometimes um, their impatience with me. And honestly, sometimes the whole thing just didn't really make sense. Like, surely a message that has good news stamped all the way across it would be something that people would want to hear, right? And yet yeah, we feel awkward. <laughs> Because the message of Jesus causes offence. Why? If you've got your Bibles open, um, have a look down with me at verse 23. And if you haven't, I'd encourage you to crack one open. You'll find one in the seat in front of you. It's page one one six. Sorry, one 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 six. One thousand one hundred sixteen. Take a look down there with me at verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped through the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. If the way of Jesus that Paul and his friends preach takes effect, then Demetrius has a lot to lose, doesn't he? First, there's a potential loss of income. You see, if all of Demetrius's clientele start becoming Christians, which is presumably the case here, then there won't be anybody left to purchase shrines of the goddess Artemis. Q: an economic downturn for Ephesus City. And Demetrius and his whole band of tradesmen will be out on their uppers. Everything they've worked for, all of the carefully selected supply chains, all of their materials, all of the jobs they've been able to create, all of their revenue will go. You see, Demetrius has understood something pretty key. And he even quotes Paul verbatim. Did you see that? Verse 26. Um, Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Yikes, (laughs) Yikes, <laughs> that's exactly what Paul has said. Demetrius might not be interested in Jesus, but he understands something of the challenge that Jesus' way presents. In fact, Demetrius is, I mean, pardon the pun, he's on the money, isn't he? I, I think we can sometimes underestimate the cost of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says to us, doesn't he, um, you wouldn't start laying out expenses for an extension on your garage before sitting down to weigh up the cost. Well, so too, before you throw in your lot with Jesus, you need to know what it's going to cost you. Demetrius doesn't like it, but he still grasps the offense of Jesus' way. Demetrius opposes Jesus But he still understands the power of Jesus' way to turn his livelihood on its head. I mean, if anything, we should have at least a little bit of compassion on Demetrius, shouldn't we? You know, if the Lord answers our prayers for revival, there will be so many positive instances of change. Knife crime. Like, wouldn't it be great if kids, adults alike, dropped their knives, and picked up Jesus instead. Like, God can do that. If he comes down powerfully, if he changes us, and we go out and tell people the message of him, that could happen. Don't we want an end to what is classically now called an epidemic of chronic loneliness? Well, there will be. If communities turn to Jesus Christ, and we are renewed in our love for one another, and we love them and take them in. But we shouldn't underestimate the many changes that may come, including economic change. What do I mean? Well, it's the mid 19th century, you're in Ulster, Northern Ireland, and four young men start to meet for a prayer meeting in a tiny, tiny village. Two years later, four swells to 100,000. We're having a prayer course on Tuesday, as you've heard, and, and each month we have a prayer meeting. But by 1859, this tiny town in the small parish in Northern Ireland was holding 100 prayer meetings a week. Now tell me, if, if you're praying that much, what do you think is going to give? Apparently, sectarian violence, so all the different cultural, political divisions, all of that aggro began to subside because as neighbours made their peace with God, so they made their peace with each other. And prostitution, drunkenness started to decline. But all to the point where a brewery had to close on account of the downturn in sales. Somebody's losing out. If God comes and works in power, many people are going to find themselves potentially out of work. Now, we might say, great, brilliant. Sure, we want maybe some of the really, I don't know, dive-like places to shut sure we want the strip clubs to shut but let's not be too hasty because what if jesus way starts to affect our idols as well what if jesus says saint john's church my family my bride it's also time for you to hand your lives to me what if jesus way starts to become a bit uncomfortable for us What if it starts to make us feel a bit oof? What if we lose? What if we experience economic loss ourselves? Let's try and think about this a bit more practically. This is a slightly silly one, but is there a shopping app that maybe you need to delete? Honestly, I had to do that this week. Um, I noticed just how much time I was spent browsing on ASOS. Some of you will know that app. Um, you know, just how much I desired the perfect trainers for my workout. <laughs> and sometimes to the detriment of just having a proper rest, you know, just cracking a book open and actually chilling with something else. I mean, it's kind of sad for me to admit that standing in front of you up here. But the God of fancy trainers said to me, give me your time. And I gave it. Folks, just delete it. It's far better for you to cut off the ASOS app than to lose your sleep and to lose your relationship with Jesus. But but now a more serious one. I mean, how about your work, friends? Like, if a revival came and it spread across this city, what do you think would change? I think maybe some people would be out of work and some of them might even be us myself included, because my wage is possible because you give to the ministry of this church. Now, I would hope that an outpouring of God's grace and his renewal would be such that it would overflow into our generosity, that we would give to one another and no one would go short. That's what we see throughout the whole of the book of Acts. The church is renewed, it comes to Christ, and there is an outpouring of generosity I'm pretty sure, certain that would happen, but if God did decide to shut down the industry that you're in, it could be tech, it could be software development, it could be theatre, it could be finance, accounting, medicine, law, I don't know, how would you respond? Now I don't mean if the cost of living crisis meant you lost your job, that's different, What I mean is, is if the way of Jesus struck down some of the altars that undergird the intricate web of, I don't know, Silicon Valley industry, or somebody took a spiritual hammer to some area of London's financial district, people started to give their lives to Christ and that changed stuff, and it started to affect your life, would you be happy about Jesus' way then? Because if Jesus' way really did turn things on its head and brought financial justice, if it made a real dent in the God of our economy, surely we'd want to be rejoicing with the Lord in that. Saying with Paul, I count all things as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Friends, Demetrius was not a Christian, but he realised that there was a cost of you? Have you realized that there's a cost? But Jesus' way, as Demetrius realizes, also means a second thing. Um, Take another look back down with me at this passage. Scan over verse 27 and 28 with me. Verse 27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again, why is the way of Jesus so offensive sometimes? Because to some, it also means a loss of self, of identity. Judging, I think, by how the crowd responds to Demetrius, I think he knew exactly how to light the touch paper. You see, he knows that people are not going to be that sad at him losing a few pounds out of his wallet. You know, they're not going to rally to that cry of pity, are they? But he does know how to play the identity card. Because Ephesus was home to one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was home to the great temple of the goddess Artemis. Um, I think we've got some pictures, so if we could have the first one up, please, that would be fantastic. This, (laughs) sorry for the quality of the picture. Um, You can go to Ephesus for $59.99. There you go, what a bargain. Um, I found that on the tube, literally, like yesterday. (laughs) I was like, snap. Um, Ephesus is still around. Um, So you can go for a tour of the ancient ruins of this biblical city that we read about here in the Bible. Um, You have to go to Turkey, not bad. If we go to the next picture. Once the greatest temple in the Mediterranean, now this is basically all that's left of it. One solitary pillar, a little bit of the foundation left. Um, There are more pillars of the Temple to Artemis in the British Museum, so I'll leave you to make of that what you will. Um, (laughs) But it it is a bit difficult, isn't it, to grasp just from this picture the sheer immensity of this temple in its heyday. So if we could have the next picture, this is an artist's reconstruction. And I don't know if you can see the tiny, tiny dots, but they're people (laughs) Um, just kind of on the front steps. They're like little ants almost they're that small what I think gets a bit lost on us when we read these passages in in Acts is just how important Ephesus was it was the capital city of the Asian province which meant that outside of Rome it was one of the key hearts of Roman imperial government it was a center of learning so today we call it a university city The whole province was one of the richest in the Roman Empire. And as a result, the city-state of Ephesus would have developed its own particular cultural identity, its own festivals, its own sports, its own public games, and importantly, it would have had a particular hold on trade and local religion. In other words, Ephesus wasn't just some, I don't know, backwater it was a bit more like one of our major cities in Western Europe. But then you add to it this temple, the temple of the goddess Artemis, recorded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, up there with the pyramids of Giza, if you've ever gone to see them. Who's like, been on a gap year, maybe? Seen the Taj Mahal, Machu Picchu? Maybe you've like, saved some elephants out in Cambodia? I don't know, something like that. Well, if you were in the ancient world, this would have been at the top of your gap year list, okay? So for fifty nine ninety nine, you can go and see it. And by all accounts, it was absolutely stunning. It dominated the city skyline in breadth and height. I looked at the square meterage. It's something like the size of St. Paul's. It's a little bit smaller. But when you think it was built without any modern technology, it's pretty stunning. And much like St. Paul's Cathedral, you know, the walls of Artemis Temple were covered from top to bottom with beautiful works of art. Standing at 20 meters tall, I mean, is that higher than this church? Probably is, isn't it? Higher than the nave of our church building. 127 columns. Again, go to the British Museum, you can see the rest. It took just shy of 200 years to build. 200 years. And it was made entirely of marble. And if that's not grand enough for you, represented the goddess herself smack bang in the middle in gold silver and ebony she was certainly a main feature of the glory and the splendor of ephesus i mean artemis's worship brought tourism it brought trade it brought fame and it was no private affair the ephesians set their calendars by religious rituals in her honor So to be Ephesian was to be an Artemisian. To be Ephesian was to be, the same thing, a worshipper of Artemis. Hence verse 28. Great is Artemis of the what? Of the Ephesians. Keeping all of that in mind, imagine with me then just how earth-shattering the gospel would have been for Ephesus. If to be Ephesian was to be a worshipper of Artemis, then discrediting Artemis is discrediting what it means to be Ephesian. Discredit Ephesus, you destroy what it means to be Ephesian. If Jesus has his way, then all of what it currently means to belong to this city disappears. The way of Jesus confronts the core of their identity. The rains come down, the floods come up, and the house is swept away. It's no wonder they're furious. And sure, Demetrius knows how to stir all that up for his own ends. But we ought to have compassion on these people because they're just like us. Humans will fight for what they love. Humans will fight for what they know to be beautiful or what they think to be beautiful, of what they 're persuaded is precious, and you stick a pin in that, you threaten what is precious don 't be surprised if, if someone suddenly switches into defense mode, and whoever doesn 't love ourselves, as Eddie was saying this morning, speaking from Isaiah. We don't readily like the idea of being clay, do we? We don't want to be shaped by God, shaped by our Heavenly Father. Rather, we want to shape ourselves and the world around us in accordance with the way that we think and our preferences. And isn't that truly at the heart of all idol worship? We are pretending to be God, literally taking clay and shaping it to make idols and temples. Why does the the way of Jesus offend? Because everybody has a god to lose. Everyone has a god to lose. Now Artemis is not Artemis is not really real. She is a god made with human hands with clay from the earth. But she's real in this sense. In that she is a picture of the Ephesians' attempts to worship themselves. In making her, the Ephesians are shaping a god to suit their world, a god for themselves, a god who looks, guess what, like the Ephesians. Proving that you're not just what you eat, (laughs) but what you worship. Why does the way of Jesus, even with our best efforts, still cause offence to people? Because Jesus won't have any idol on the throne of our lives except him, the true idol, the true God. Why does the way of Jesus offend? Because everyone has a God of their own making to lose. But finally... The way of jesus might cause offense but jesus messengers are inoffensive if we'd have the next slide please this is what we've seen so far this is my terrible attempt at making a slide to try and put it into picture form this is what it meant to be ephesian artemis is the foundation and upon that they built their trade and all of their beliefs about themselves and that was their glory we have the next one please but where's their glory now you know demetrius and his friends we're not stupid you know those stakeholders in our society who know the changes the gospel brings are well aware of the implications it's this And sometimes, like Demetrius, they'll employ a confused crowd to pressure and to press Jesus' followers into staying silent. Just consider with me the movement that we go through in this passage. Demetrius feels under threat. Threat then ripples outwards into the people until threat becomes, verse 28, fury. Fury turns to riot, verse 29. Riot descends into confusion, verse 32. Confusion into wild chaos, verse 34. Ephesus is totally out of control. So much so that prominent city officials, personal friends of Paul, warn him not to venture into the theatre. And a random Jewish leader's pushed forward to appease the crowd, but it seems to only make things worse. I don't know if you noticed when Mandy read it, but verse thirty-four, they shouted for two whole hours the same thing over and over and over and over again. It's absolutely wild. And yet, as quickly as it began, it was all over. Take a look down at verse thirty-five. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus, etc., etc., etc. Verse 41. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Everything seems out of control. Ephesus will not give in, Artemis will keep her glory, and how dare Paul or anyone else stand up and say otherwise. And yet, the city clerk dismisses them very much like a headmaster sending an assembly of school pupils back to class. How? Well, did you notice that the city clerk appeals to Paul's innocence? Verse 37 you, the crowd, you've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Friends, it is true that Jesus confronts idolatry, and that really does offend. But nowhere are we encouraged to do the offending in our manner or in our actions. We we don't stand outside with placards for that reason. We don't mock others for their beliefs, even though they mock us. We do not give way to anger. We do not give way to violence. We certainly do not employ the same tools as everybody else because we do not fight flesh and blood, but spiritual powers. Rather, we stand firm knowing that our treasure is firm in Christ. And so is all of our worth and all of our glory bound up with him. You see, for Paul, this was his reality. Can we have the next picture, please? If you have Jesus as your foundation, yeah, it, it will change your lifestyle. It will change your trade, your economics, your business, your money, your wealth, your finances. And it will change your identity because you belong to him. But the most amazing thing is That the glory you felt you lost, you now acquire in greater volume and greater strength than you possibly could ever have attained by your own merit because it's Jesus' glory. Sure, we go through suffering and then glory, but we will have glory. The way of Jesus causes offense, but not so with Jesus' messengers remember John three seventeen. the father has sent his son into this world not to condemn it but through him to save the world we do not have a ministry of condemnation but of reconciliation we may lose much for the gospel and other people that we speak to will have to reckon with that loss and yet there is so much to gain in Christ so much to gain Be encouraged that you can leave the challenge of Jesus' message to Jesus. He is strong enough to bear it. He is strong enough to pacify the crowds. And stand firm. Stand firm. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus we thank you that you you are truly the hope of the nations whether they know it or not you are so kind in taking away those things that would corrupt and alter us into things that make us less human we praise you that your message challenges and confronts we thank you that you've called us you've enabled us to count the cost Lord, help us tonight to see with fresh eyes and fresh hearts where perhaps you might be putting that deeper and asking us to, to give over our lives to you. Lord Jesus, help us to stand firm in the face of what sometimes is awkward or difficult or hard when people take offense at your word, at your message, knowing that our glory is bound up with yours knowing that we do not need to use the same tactics, but we can stand firm. Please have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.